Today we're going to be looking at a really sweet passage of Scripture, one that I'm eager to dive into. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. The centerpiece of our gathering is certainly the Word of God. Amen? Amen to that. Uh, I also want to say welcome and greetings to those who are joining us online all over our region, all over the world, really. Uh, I want to say thanks to those of you who carved out time to be here this morning because of your faith in Jesus. And maybe you don't currently have faith in Christ. That's okay, too. We, we're grateful for you being here, but we pray that you would know that the only hope in this life and in the life to come is found in Jesus. And we'd love to talk to you about that. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's designed to help us to know how to survive seasons of discouragement. And I'm thankful for God's Word that is not uh, blinded to those things, that Scripture doesn't come to us in some Pollyanna form to uh, communicate the everyday of life as rainbows and roses. The fact of the matter is, is that seasons of discouragement come. How many can say amen to that? We all know what it's like to go through seasons of discouragement. I certainly know what it's like to go through seasons of discouragement. As a matter of fact, I, I think it was very appropriate. I found myself thanking God that he gave me this passage of scripture to prepare for this week because to be totally transparent and honest, this has been a heavy week. There's been uh, some significant discouragement on my own heart and my own soul. And I don't say that to arouse your concern. Uh, I know God is faithful, and he's proven that to me. And I know that he will see me through this week and the weeks to come. But I say that because some of you in here need to know that you are not alone. Because part of what discouragement does for us is it makes us feel like we are alone. That's one of the great lies of discouragement. As a matter of fact, in preparation for today, I came across this quote from the great evangelist Billy Graham. And he says this, I have known many seasons of deep discouragement. There have been many nights where I've gone to God with tears in my eyes. Here's a man who is estimated to have uh, preached the gospel to over 100 million people before he died. Some would argue that he had the greatest evangelistic ministry of anyone in church history. So many millions of people came to faith in Christ through the ministry of Billy Graham. But yet he says, in spite of all that I've seen of men and women of renown coming to faith in Christ, boys and girls, families of all backgrounds coming to faith in Jesus, I still know what it's like to have seasons of deep, deep discouragement and to go to God many nights in tears. One of the preachers that I quote often here is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a man who uh, uh, preached and had a great ministry in England during the 1800s. He would often tell his uh, church family that he dealt uh, often with depression. He would often tell them that he dealt with it so severely that he wished what he dealt with or lived with upon no one. It was a great uh, preacher, uh, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who also was from uh, England. Not all great preachers are from England, but a few came out of there. Uh, but he uh, was a medical doctor as well. He wrote the book Spiritual Depression, Spiritual Depression, in which he not only from a theological perspective deals with uh, this, but also from a medical 
profession because he was a former medical doctor who became a preacher in, in England. I say all that to say you are not alone. But I also want you to know that not every season of discouragement is of the same ilk, if you will. I've gone through different types of seasons of discouragement. Some I would call simple seasons of discouragement, like when I was a young boy, my first love in sports was baseball, and uh, I played Little League Baseball, and one year I had a really good year, and I was good enough to make the All-Star team and the All-Star game from my uh, little hometown. And so there I was, an All-Star game, coming off of a great year. I got three at-bats, and I struck out three times in that All-Star game. I was so discouraged that afterwards the coach was taking the whole team to Pizza Hut, and I told my mom, I want no parts of it, take me home. Can you imagine being that discouraged that you will skip Pizza Hut? Can you imagine that? So that's how discouraged I was. But there's, there's simple seasons of discouragement, but then there are deep seasons, what I would call deep seasons of discouragement, like when I went through uh, church hurt, my first season of church hurt, and I began to question for the first time the love of the church and wonder whether or not I wanted to still be a part. Or a few years ago when our oldest son died, and I remember going to God saying to the Lord, I feel like a failure as a father because I couldn't prevent my son from dying. And going through this deep season of discouragement, and again, I bring that up not to invoke your sympathy as much as to say to those of you who are currently in a moment like that, you are not alone. And what I've seen through those moments of life is that God is faithful and that he is good and that the psalmist David is right that even when we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is there with us and his word is not silent in our sufferings. But I've also noticed for me, and maybe you've noticed for you as well, that one of the great temptations, one of the great risks for my own soul when seasons of discouragement come is to give in to self-pity to begin to think, woe is me, to begin to think like not only am I dropping the ball, missing the mark, maybe a failure, but that somehow God's goodness and grace has skipped over me. Self-pity is a really dangerous thing. It was Helen Keller who um, said a really famous quote about self-pity. Now, Helen Keller, for those of you who don't know, some of you will readily know her name and know she's one of the great American authors and uh, uh, activists in, in American history. By 19 months, the age of 19 months, Helen Keller, because of a battle of sick with sickness, could no longer see or hear, but that didn't stop this phenomenal woman. She went on to attend Harvard, was the first in American history to get a bachelor's degree in spite of not being able to see and not being able to hear. But because of her sickness and afflictions in her body, she says she went through many, many seasons of discouragement and self-pity. And she was also a strong woman of faith in Jesus. She says this, the self-pity is our worst enemy. If we yield to it, we can do nothing of value for God in this world. I think those are strong words that only carry credibility because of the life of the person who said it. 
I think she's uniquely qualified to say it, that even in her seasons of self-pity, and I've certainly found this to be true, that we lose sight of God's calling, his purpose, his plan, the very things that he would place before us to do. And as we look inward and cave in on ourselves, we lose the ability to do anything of value for the Lord in this world. So today I want to look at his word so that we can be reminded that God's call conquers our self-pity. So that we can learn from God's word how to defeat seasons of discouragement and how to slay self-pity in our own lives. Because I'm convinced that many of us are there because of our situations and our circumstances and we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. So join me in 1 Kings chapter 19, and what we're going to see is God's call is what conquers self-pity in our lives. We're studying the life of Elijah. We've been in this biopic study, and it's been pretty incredible up until now. Elijah in chapter 17 and 18 has done no less than seven miracles of God. There have been seven mighty mountaintop moments of faith in Elijah's life so far. Things like him praying and receiving the power of the Spirit to speak truth to political power and to say to King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel at that time, and his wife Jezebel, this uh, vicious queen of Israel, both very ungodly, he says to them, after praying, there will be no rain, and there was no rain. And the point of that story, imagine God moving like that in your life. The point of that story is God is sovereign over all of nature, and yet he responds to the prayers of his servants, and he responded to Elijah's prayer. Or what about the moment where a boy dies, a young boy dies, and Elijah prays, and the boy is raised from the dead? How many would love to see that in your life, right? That's a pretty mighty moment. And the point of all of that is to demonstrate God's power over life and death, that God can do what doctors and medicines cannot do. He is sovereign over all. Well, what about the moment that we just read about where he stands against 450 false prophets of Baal, prays a humble prayer, and God sends fire from heaven? How many would love to see that in your life? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) We think we would. But imagine that miraculous moment and God showing that he is more powerful than Baal, than every other idol, than every other false god, that there is only one true God, and that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Scripture, Yahweh, Jehovah, the one that we worship today. He is alone sovereign and worthy of our praise. Amen? Imagine seeing all of that. And and if we only had those moments in Elijah's life, we wouldn't be able to relate to him. Some of you say, Pastor Chris, I'm not even trying to raise the dead. I'm just praying about this cold that I got or these allergies. I'll be happy to see God move in that way, right? We wouldn't be able to relate to this man. But yet James says in James chapter 5, verse number 17, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And if you only had chapter 17 and 18, you'd scratch your head and say, in what way is he like us? 
That's why I thank God that 19 is in the book. That the Spirit of God took these selective vignettes from Elijah's life and recorded them for me and for you so that we can know just like Elijah, we're going to have mountaintop moments of faith, but we're also going to have valleys of deep discouragement as well. We find him in that, in that valley as we encounter him in verse 1. And what we're going to see is the ways in which God conquers self-pity in our lives. Look at verse number 1. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I don't, do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, Elijah, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow. Verse number three, then he was afraid. He arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. Some of your translations may say a juniper tree. And he asked that he might die and saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at uh, his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There's so much that's packed in here that I almost feel embarrassed. And I need to preface this sermon by saying that I won't be able to plummet the depths of the truth of God in this. But I do think there are some clear truths that we will be able to unpack that will give us some encouragement for our souls to break free from the seasons of discouragement and from the prison of self-pity. The first thing that's here, and it's easy for us to miss, is this, is that supernatural moves of God are not always the cure for our self-pity. I know, I know. We think that if God would just do for us what he did for Elijah, that we would no longer feel bad about ourselves or our situation. If we only saw someone raised from the dead or God moving through nature or fire raining down or our children coming to faith in Christ or our spouse going through some radical repentance or revival breaking out in our family or our neighborhood, that somehow that would cure our doubts. And sometimes it does, but that is not always the case. Consider Israel in this passage. Ahab and Jezebel, the leaders of Israel, had just come from this, this, this enormous event where God, beyond a shadow of a doubt, proved that he was the Lord. Has he ever done that in your life? Has he ever done something in your life so significant that you said, God, I trust you. I know that you are real. I will follow you. For many of you, most of you that are here or maybe even watching He's done something in your life that was that magnificent. But be careful because there's something about the fall and its impact upon our souls that we are so apt to forget that. 
I call it spiritual amnesia. Israel, just a chapter before, was crying out, Jehovah is the Lord. But now, here is Ahab and Jezebel, the leaders of Israel, ready to kill him, just like they had done all the previous prophets of God. And what is Elijah's response to this? I mean, he just stood toe-to-toe, neck-to-neck, eye-to-eye with 400 false prophets. And not only did the, 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 the contest not only proved that God was God and Baal was not, but all of those 450 were slain. If you saw that and then you got a letter from a queen spouting off about how she's going to take your life, how would you expect to respond? Well, again, never underestimate the human nature because we can go from the mountaintops of faith to the depths of discouragement overnight. And this is exactly what happens to him. He is totally afraid. There's a lot I could say about Ahab, and I just want to say one thing about Ahab. Ahab was not only a wicked man, he was a weak spiritual leader. And I want to use this as a moment to speak to our men in this church. We need men who are strong spiritual leaders. The church cannot be built on the shoulders of weak men who don't know how to lead their families or lead the church spiritually. We need men who are devoted to the Word of God, not only reading it, knowing it, but doing it. We need men who know how to lead their families well. We need men who know how to lead the church well. When a person like a John Jelenic or yesterday did the funeral for another great man, Tim Layton, when those types of men make their transition to be with the Lord, there is a vacancy that is left. You don't grow good men on trees, but there has to be some men in the fellowship of believers that say, I will step up and I will lead and serve the Lord humbly as they did. To be a strong man spiritually doesn't mean that you have to be domineering or abusive, but it does mean that you say, here my Lord, use me. But here Ahab has allowed a, a nation to go off after idols because he was a weak leader in his country and a weak leader in his home. He comes whimpering to his wife. And Jezebel is the type of woman that says, if you can't get it done, I'll handle it. Anybody married to that type of woman? Don't raise your hand. Do not. Raise your hand. I joke with my wife. I often said to my wife, you could not have married a lazy man. Because when my wife gives me a request, I know I got about 30 seconds to do it or she will do it herself. Now, to be a strong woman is no sin. Let me be clear about that. To be a strong, decisive, capable woman is no sin if surrendered to the Lord. But if not surrendered to the Lord, you can do much damage in your life and in the life of many others. And Jezebel was not surrendered to the Lord. So she looked at her weak husband, Ahab, and said, if you can't take him out, I'll take him out. And so she writes this letter. And Elijah, literally, the scripture says, this man of God ran for his life, ran from his calling. He runs to Beersheba, which is 95 miles away from Jezreel, where he's at. He ran from Jezreel to Beersheba, 95 miles. His servant apparently tried to keep up with him. They get to Beersheba. 
Elijah doesn't stop there. He leaves his servant there and goes another day's journey into the wilderness to hide out. Have you ever run from the call of God on your life? Because you were discouraged, because you felt inadequate, because the devil had breathed out threats against you. I don't know what threats the enemy has brought your way lately. Maybe he said, I'll destroy your life like he did to Elijah. Or maybe he said, I'll expose you for the fraud you are. Or maybe he says, your kids will never come to Jesus. Or maybe he says, I'm going to ruin your marriage. I don't know what threats he's thrown out your way, but I do know this, that on our good days, we can stand against those threats armed with an open Bible. But on our bad days, we respond just like Elijah. I know what it's like to want to run from your call. And so here he is in this wilderness. He's away from God. And I want you to know what blesses me the most. It is how God responds to this moment. This man has denied his calling. He has cried out to God. God, I don't want to live anymore. Take my life. And you would think that God would rebuke him. But God does not rebuke him. He says to him, gently, rest, eat, drink. You're exhausted, Elijah. You are physically exhausted from running. You are spiritually exhausted, just came down from this spiritual high. You need to rest. And then one of my favorite verses of the Bible some of my favorite words in all of Scripture, verse number six, there was at his head a cake. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. That's my hallelujah moment. You got your life verse, I got my life verse. I love that God hooked him up with a cake. Now, most, most scholars say it was a loaf of bread if it was me, I would have taken the chocolate cake. Now, now, let me just be careful because I said that in our earlier service and somebody went and got me a chocolate cake and blessed me. Though I like it, I don't always need it. So thank, thank God for his goodness. But for those of you who have that ministry of hospitality, know that God uses that too. But I just want you to see this because it is so contrary to the way I'm wired and maybe the way you are wired. God does not give Elijah a checklist of activities that he must do for him. No, his key to victory over seasons of discouragement, and maybe for you and me as well, the most spiritual thing that he could do was sleep. Wake up, have a meal, Go back to bed and rest again. Two seasons where you need to be on guard for discouragement to come in. One is after you have been through a pretty significant ministry season and it's been spiritually exhilarating, but maybe also spiritually draining. And the other season is when you are physically exhausted. That's when we are really susceptible and in all of those moments, Satan takes advantage. He seizes the opportunity. But God visits him and says to him, rest, eat, 
And maybe today what God is saying to some of us that are in this room is that you need to rest. You've been pushing hard. And I am speaking to my friends who are dedicated, who are diligent, those of you who don't run the risk of being called lazy. There is something redemptive about being a grinder and working hard, but there's also a great risk with that. And the great risk for people like me and you is that we will work ourselves into discouragement. And often it's when things fall apart that we can finally hear God saying, sleep. But maybe today God has sent me to say to you, you need to rest. You need to find rest for your soul before you lose your calling, before you find yourself in a place you should not be. What I love about God's response to Elijah in this moment is that when I am in self-pity, I want to isolate. When I'm in self-pity, I don't want to take a call or a text or visitors to my house. When I'm in self-pity, I want to sit in the room by myself and pull the covers over my head. I withdraw, and that often causes the people around me to withdraw but God does not withdraw from Elijah, nor does he withdraw from us in our seasons of discouragement, but he draws close. The first thing I want you to know is that God conquers our self-pity by calling us to himself. But the story goes on, verse number nine, it says, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. Some of you may remember in chapter 18, he had met Obadiah who had told him that he had hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by groups of 50 in the caves. So no doubt Elijah remembering that went to hide in the cave and he lodged there and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of Host for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, Elijah's discouragement was because of his perceived failure of ministry. Here he had ministered for the Lord. There had been great miracles. He had preached great messages, and yet the country was still not converted. They were still in their rebellion. They were still not following the Lord. And maybe you feel like that after your ministry as a parent. Your kids maybe aren't following the Lord or your spouse. Maybe in marriage, maybe they're not following the Lord. Or maybe like many pastors or church um, leaders, you're, you're feeling discouraged because your ministry has not produced the fruit that you thought it would ex experience. This is where Elijah was at. And on top of that, the enemy was threatening him. Verse number 11, and he said... This is the Lord speaking. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Jump down to verse number 18. The Lord speaking, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I love this because God not only calls him to himself, but he calls him to the truth. Here's what God does in Elijah's life. He says, Elijah, I want you to go stand in the cleft of the rock. I want you to go stand at the entrance of the cave. Now imagine this, God saying, you and I need an appointment. You don't miss an appointment with God. This wasn't an optional meeting. God wanted to meet with him. And then these mighty moments begin to happen. The wind blows. Rocks begin to break into pieces. The earth quakes. Fire comes. But it says that the Lord was not in any of it. But he was in this still small voice or this low whisper. And I've seen a lot of people try to interpret this in pretty... Um, pretty unhealthy ways. To say somehow that God is not in winds or fires or earthquakes, but he's in this still small voice and you need to get in contact with the inner still small voice so that you can hear God. I don't think that that's what this is about because surely he is often in wind, in earthquakes, and in fire. As Ezekiel, if God is in the wind, when in Ezekiel 37, he stands in the valley of dry bones and the wind of God blows and they become a mighty army for God. And he will say, yes, he is in the wind. You ask Paul and Silas who were in a Roman jail in Acts 16, if God is in earthquakes, when the earth shook and their shackles came off and a jailer was saved and the entire family of the jailer comes to Christ and there's revival that sweeps through the town and Paul and Silas will say to you, yes, he is in the earthquake. Ask Moses if God is in the fire. When in Exodus 3, he looks at a burning bush not consumed by the fire, so in awe of it that he says, this is holy ground and takes his sandals off. Yes, God is in the fire, but not this time. And why not this time? Because that's not what Elijah needed. What Elijah needed was a whisper. He needed a whisper for two reasons. He needed a whisper to know that God still loved him and still cared for him. God knows what you need. He knows when you need wind and earthquake and fire. And he is more than able to give wind and earthquake and fire when we need it. But he also knows when we need to hear God say to us, what are you doing here? This isn't you. This isn't your character. You're a man of God. You're a woman of God. What are you doing here? Why are you running from your calling? Why are you behaving this way? You're not meant to be here. He knows when we need a whisper. But the second reason I am convinced that, that Elijah needed a whisper was because he needed to know how to respect whispers. 
and not just how to see God when there was great things happening. You see his dilemma, his discouragement at the root of it is that he didn't see great spiritual movement happening in Israel, so he thought no movement was happening in Israel. But God needed to remind him that just because you're not seeing an earthquake movement of revival in Israel doesn't mean that I'm not at work. Just like I whisper to your heart, I'm whispering to hearts that you don't even know about. There's 7,000 other hearts that I'm whispering to. And some of you, my fear for you is that you might miss a move of God because you don't know how to see him in the whisper. You might miss that God is at work in your children's hearts just because they haven't answered the call to become a pastor. They're still letting you talk to them, aren't they? There's, there's a whisper movement. Some of you may miss that God is at work in your spouse because they haven't come to some radical repentance yet. But at least they were nice yesterday. Maybe they were mean and angry all the rest of the week, but see God in the whisper. See God in the small moves. Ask God to open your eyes and open your ears and open your heart to his small moves so that you don't miss that God is at work. And let me just remind you, friends, he is at work in your life. He doesn't give one day or one square inch to the enemy over every square inch of created order. Christ declares mine. He is at work in your life. We lose sight of it, but he reminds us, just like he reminded Elijah. Just a few more verses, if you will. Verse number 15, we skipped it. Let's go back. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king of Syria and Jehu, son of Nimshi. And you shall anoint to be king over Israel and Elijah, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah. I think that's how you pronounce it, but none of you can dispute that. So... Abel Mahola ain't even here to fight for himself. So I'm going to just say that's how you call it. That's what his mother called him. That's what I'm going to call it. You shall anoint, you should anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Now you may say, well, what are these verses all about? This is, these verses are simply about God calling him back to his calling. And he does that for us. It's as if God says to Elijah, man of God, you know you shouldn't be here. There's still work to be done. Get over your discouragement. Get back in your calling. And let's go and do what a prophet is supposed to do. I got three assignments for you. I want you to go and anoint Haziel, king of Damascus, king of Syria, whose capital was Damascus, go anoint the next king of Israel, Jehu, and go anoint Elijah, who will be your successor as a prophet. And God calls us just to get back to work. And maybe he's saying to you, it's time for you to get back on a praise team. Maybe he's saying to you, it's time for you to start serving your kids again. Maybe he's saying to you, it's time for you to get back into Bible study. Maybe he's saying to you, it's time for you to begin to do what I anointed you to do uniquely, whatever that unique thing is for you. And I know what it's like to sit out for seasons, but it's also time to get off the bench and to get back in the game. Pastor David Anderson, who was the senior pastor here for 
18 years and went off and served in missions and came back and serves this church so faithfully. And one of his most famous sermons here at Woodside shared about him and his wife Mary and how they lived their lives for so many years. And there was a famous saying that he said, I wasn't a member of the church at the time of the sermon, but it so impacted a generation of young people that I often hear them recite this for me. What he simply said was, the way that he structured his life was to simply do the next obvious thing for the glory of God. That may seem like earth-shattering to you in its profound simplicity, but it helped a man and his wife to be used by God for over 60-plus years now. And it will help you to get back in the game. Don't overcomplicate it. Just do the next obvious thing for the glory of God. You're not meant to stay where you are. God's not done with you yet. He is faithful. And today, he wants to call you out of your self-pity, out of your season of discouragement. The reason why we preach these messages is to mobilize you for mission for God. There's work to be done. There's a gospel that needs to be proclaimed. There are people who need to be reached for Jesus. There's a world out there dying in their sins. There's a generation that needs to be discipled. Let's leave this place and go do the next obvious thing for the glory of God until Christ returns, until all have heard. Everybody stand. All of the promises for us are yes and amen in Christ. This was not recorded in your Bible simply for you to say, look at what God did for Elijah. This was recorded in your Bible for you to say, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is no respecter of persons. What he did for Elijah, he will do for me as well. Amen? Amen. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, these promises don't apply to you, though he longs for them to. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. I want to pray for us as we're dismissed, but I would be remiss if I did not offer this invitation. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you know you need the grace of salvation and you know you need a Savior, don't leave this place without giving your heart to him. There'll be friends up front to pray with you. There'll be friends in the lobby. But today, don't get this close to God's grace and leave without a relationship with Jesus. Come to him for the first time for some or come home again for others.